0: Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on December 4th, Lord's Day Service. This morning is Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I've cried unto you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those that watch for the morning. Yes, more than those that watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the redemption provided to us through our Savior. Thank you that when we had no way to come to you, you came to us through Jesus, the Messiah. And you've given us your spirit by which we participate in union with him. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, we read one of Jesus' stranger statements. He said, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and take it by force. The language of violence can be difficult for some. Why would Jesus consider violence a good thing? because it is only through spiritual violence that spiritual warfare can be successful. If you think about the spiritual life as one that's passive, that's laid back, where you just let everything happen, you just absorb it and you say, it'll all turn out fine. No, you have the wrong idea. God's people are called to lay siege to his very throne to encompass him with prayer and faithful expectation don't let the words that i use this morning if you've heard them some of them before it's really easy just to kind of let it brush over and to not grab hold of what the scripture teaches Christians, through faithful adherence to the testimonies of God's Word, through prayer, through belief, through obedience, and through faith, have turned the world upside down through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not just something that happened back then that we say, boy, wouldn't it be great. Now we're just going to do nothing. Not at all. We're called, as I just said, to participate in a siege. Usually, though, a siege is for the purpose of overtaking, of capturing, of plundering the opposing side. But in this case, God calls us to do that very thing. He calls us to this siege. It would be like if a king in an opposing castle told those who were outside, I want you to lay siege to my castle. Thomas Watson outlines the elements of this in Psalm 130, of Psalm 130 and of other scriptures focusing on Matthew 11, verse 12, in his small book, Heaven Taken by Storm, which I highly recommend. But we see an example of this type of siege in Psalm 130. It forces us in this psalm to stare at the depths of our sin as well as to magnify the glory of God for his inexhaustible grace. This psalm settles us in our call to wait in hope and focuses us on the coming redemption of God's people. And it all begins with fervent prayer. In the first two verses, we see a prayer to the king from the the depths of anguish. When he says, out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplication. Earnest prayer doesn't arise from a casual heart. Many times, our prayers seem to have no strength. Or we don't even feel inclined to pray. I'm not asking for a show of hands here. But everybody in this room, if you've prayed before, you know what it's like to not want to pray. Including the one speaking to you right now. There is a a somewhat pious sentiment that I've heard expressed at times by people who say, if we really believed, if Christians really believed that the Bible is the Word of God, if they really believed that the God of all creation heard heard their prayers, then they'd be praying all the time with greater fervency and they would read their Bible. On one hand that's true but just as the creator of all things visible and invisible has called us to to this also our greatest enemies are working night and day to keep us from it but we are a part of this battle our souls often feel dead perhaps distracted by numerous activities distracted by or deadened by details left unattended, or because we feel oppressed by our failures and discouragements. We don't know the particular depths the psalmist was speaking of here when he calls upon God, but we know what it's like to pray from the depths. Some of you right now, you've come to church, you know what, you you understand that, you know, the church plaster, that, that is, you know, that your lips upturned, everything looks good, you know how it's supposed to look, you know people ask you how you're doing, you know the, you know, four or five different comebacks that, doesn't, that don't raise eyebrows. We know this, living this life long enough, we get it. But some right now are in depths that you're not, you're not going to talk to anyone about. So let me stop and say, your father knows exactly where you are. Where you are is where the psalmist was when he was praying this very thing. He was in depths. We know what it's like when the waves of sin, sorrow, and fear threaten to drown us. And it's not just that we can pray when our souls feel dead. That's the time when we need to pray the most. The times when you feel like it will do no good are the times when it will do the most good, not only for you, but for the situation that you are surrounded with. Your enemy whispers that God will not hear one like you. you ever heard that whisper before? You ever heard, no, no, no point in this, you're a piece of trash. Because, and then you just go through the list. And after you get to, you know, number 712 of why you won't be heard, you just kind of give up listening at that point. Don't listen to the father of lies. We must battle the dragon of doubt so that we may besiege the gates of heaven. It's like before we can make it to the siege, there's a dragon before us and we have to, we can't go around him, we can't go over him, we have to go through him. But the weapons of your warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, and that dragon who is withstanding you now is a whole lot of bluster who's already been defeated by the king of kings. Do not let him dissuade you from this holy calling. Consider this. Is there any great work of God that was accomplished apart from fervent prayer? The deliverance of Israel was preceded by the crying of the people to God. The same is true for their crossing of the Red Sea, for the sacking of Jericho, for the defeat of Jehoshaphat's enemies in 2 Chronicles 20. And we could go on. There are many examples of this, but it it isn't only deliverance from national problems. We see great works of God individually. We see it in David's personal prayer, prior or after his sin with Bathsheba, his prayer of confession and restoration in Psalm 51. We even see it in Jesus' prayers prior to his crucifixion. The same God who heard Noah, who heard Abraham, who delivered Joseph from slavery, who delivered David from Saul, and Daniel from the lion's mouth, will hear you because his word says he will. No matter what you've been through or what you've experienced, like the psalmist, don't let doubt or fear keep you from the courts of the Lord. In verses 3 and 4, we see the limitations of sin, but we also see forgiveness extended. After battling with the dragon of doubt, another obstacle keeping us out of God's presence is the mountainous maze of our own sin. Here we encounter, in this maze, we encounter the fog of guilt for the things we've done, as well as the actual sins that we don't want to acknowledge. This is one reason why we often will respond strongly to the sins of others. Have you ever seen in your own life, when you when you see somebody else commit some type of sin and it just really galls you, it just makes you furious inside. How could someone do that? That is so dis- that irritating. And I'm not talking even about the huge sins, you know, the nasty things that, that, that we put folks in jail for. I'm just talking about the little stuff that we think, Godly people don't do that. Often, not every time, but often it's because we know this is where our own heart would go if it were not for God's grace. If you think you can get through the tangled maze of sin by yourself, Forget it. Each sin in our life represents a crooked wrong turn from the path until eventually we are hopelessly lost. I would not advise ever going through a cave in the dark. But this is exactly what it is. For us when we walk in sin. We, we are walking, we just take one turn, and then another, and then another, and when it's dark, eventually you have no idea where you are. It's easy to get in. It's not easy to get out. We have no ability to return on our own. The path is too dark. It's too winding. There is only one way through this impossible labyrinth. It was a door. It is a door built by a Galilean carpenter. Before he came, God's presence was restricted. We could only come by first bringing an offering and then only for a brief time. Jesus came to free us, to open the door of heaven to God's people. But not only does he open the door collectively, he washes us individually. In his sacrifice, he takes away our sin and gives us new robes of righteousness. But you don't get those robes apart from him. There are all kinds of people who want freedom from guilt. Desiring freedom from guilt is as natural as desiring food. We don't like things that hinder us from life. The psalmist says, there is forgiveness with you. That you may be feared there's not just forgiveness in the abstract there's forgiveness through the only one who died and gave himself for us that's the only source he is the only source of forgiveness any hope of coming to Christ only for his gifts apart from union with him is impossible in him we are changed And are being changed so this begins with the work of forgiveness yet his work is more than just fixing me and my problems or you and your problems this is a gift on behalf of his entire church we see how much we sin. When he opens our eyes for us to actually see who we are by ourselves it's not pretty. Have you ever woken up after a terrible night of sleep and you go and look in the mirror and you think I really I I wish I hadn't done that. Maybe not. I don't know. I have. Our hearts Are a thousand times worse on our own when left to ourselves but praise God he doesn't leave us to ourselves if he should mark iniquities how many of us could say I mean I'm good I'm all right of course not But he doesn't leave us there. The psalmist doesn't leave us there. He says, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We come to him for forgiveness, and we remain not in petrified fear, but in holy fear, in drawing fear, in a fear that causes us to want more of him, not a fear that says, I've got to shrink back. This is the difference between the fear of God and the fear of anything else. Christ prepares, arms, and trains us to besiege the heavenly gate together. It's not just you doing your thing in your own individual Christian life that you go to God's throne and you just, you, you just kind of walk up there and you look around and you're totally alone. No, when you go... You're going with a company of people. You can't see them all right now. But just because you can't see something doesn't mean that it's not real. The most real things are the things right now you can't even see. Ponder that. So Jesus, discipleship is our learning to come and to be more like God through the work of Christ, but he doesn't do this all at once. It requires waiting, which he talks about in verse 5 and 6, where we see that waiting for the Lord, we're called to wait for the Lord while hoping in his promises. Now, why is all this talk about storming, about pursuing, and then waiting? Pretty anticlimactic. But a siege demands patience. It maintains presence while growing in power. This siege is not against an enemy, but a friend. A friend who knows that the strength we need to receive, the strength needed to receive his gifts, is only developed through patience. We can't have everything that we want. If he were to give us everything that we wanted, and I'm even talking about the good things that we want. I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about the request you make as a kid when, when somebody says, if you could have anything, I would have a really big fast car. At least that's what boys say. I'm not sure what girls say, but something. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about the best things. If whatever those great things are, if 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 he were to give us all of that, you know, being like Christ right now, if he were to give you everything you wanted right now, you couldn't handle it. Neither could I. That's why Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter four that He's working in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight. The suffering that, we're experiencing, that we experience is working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. We are being prepared to be more like Him. And this preparation takes time. It's waiting. God hears us when we pray, but He doesn't answer us immediately. We don't come before his gates presumptuously, but persistently and hopefully because of his good promises. That's why he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word do I hope. If you base your waiting on what you can see happening in front of you right now, many of us would be discouraged within about 10 minutes. Because sometimes when you're praying, you know this, you pray and you pray and you pray, and then five minutes later when you look up, everything's just the same as it was. Or maybe it's five days or five weeks or months. And it doesn't happen. And you think, maybe he doesn't like me? He said, nobody would ever say that. I know some people who have some preachers who have we make up all kinds of excuses but it's, David did not the, the, the psalmist does not say here I wait for the Lord my soul waits and in my improving situation do I hope it's not based on the situation that he has hope it's on the work and the Word of God We must come before him. But before we receive what he has in store, he must prepare us. That preparation is called discipleship. In discipleship, we learn from Jesus how to pray, to walk, to love, and even to hate, as is appropriate, to hate the things that are evil. Our tastes are refined. We not only wait for God to work in us and in our families, but for Him to work in our world. We see things around us all the time that are wrong. We we, we see things that are going badly. Again, not just individually, but we look around. You read the news. You see things. You hear of things that are discouraging. When you see these things... Don't curse the stuff. Call on the Savior. Pray. Our waiting is not passive. It should not be passive. But our waiting is eager and hopeful. In verse 6 he says that he waits or he watches for the Lord and then he repeats this line. In Hebrew it is it's two lines repeated right on top of each other. More than those that watch for the morning, more than those that watch for the morning. It's repeated for emphasis. This siege is not one where we break through on our own. He's saying that I am waiting for him. I'm like the one who's on the wall, who's watching for the good news that's going to come. The watchman, his job was to, to look and to see when a runner would come in having something good to say. That's what the psalmist is saying here. I'm waiting, I'm anticipating what will happen. We pray for the king, for the kingdom to come. But he must be the one who opens the doors and brings his forces out. Unless he comes to us, we're whistling towards the grave. And this points us, though, to the closing assurance given in this psalm. He doesn't stop merely with waiting although we are called to wait eagerly. He points in verses 7 and 8 to the coming of redemption. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and there is with Him abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. These verses are a call to retain hope. Despite your weight, despite your sieging of heaven, your calling, but not seeing your prayers answered in time. He's telling, he says it in verses 5 and 6, and he also repeats it in verse 7, the need for hope. Hope is not just, I really want this to happen. We often use the word hope as a synonym for wish. David doesn't say, I wish this thing would happen no wishes don't have much of an anchor our hope does have an anchor it's the rock the rock that existed before any of us did (laughs) he's everything he has what we need and he's not going anywhere you and I will fade Eventually, one day we will die. But there's hope because there's resurrection after that. We are given hope, hope in the one who calls us, hope in the one who loves us with an everlasting love, hope in the one who died, was resurrected, and ascended to the Father on our behalf. Whatever situation you're facing, we have his promise that he will come you may not recognize his coming there were a lot of people looking for the messiah who when he walked right by them couldn't see it because their expectations were off we may say poor saps but how many times has the lord showed himself has done something wonderful for us and we're totally oblivious Try a lot. How many times has he been good, and we don't recognize it until after? And that's okay. I'm not condemning. I'm, 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 I don't mean that at all. But the Lord does come. But sometimes he doesn't, he just doesn't come the way I want him to. This is the beauty of Advent. For it is a microcosm of our wait for the Lord to come. For ancient men, a redeemer wasn't just someone who would free slaves. That's the the normal definition we hear. If you look up a, a textbook definition, you see one who pays for the freeing of a slave. And that's technically true, but there's a lot more to redemption than that. A redeemer could also be one who forcefully frees captives. A redeemer goes in and leads a battle charge. God's people waited thousands of years, and at the appointed time, Jesus came. Yet he didn't come as the conquering king at first, but as a suffering servant. You see, brothers and sisters, our redemption is not yet fully realized. The ground of our hope is not what we experience now, but the ground of our hope is actually in the final resurrection and restoration of all things. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ... We are of all men most miserable. Now, have you ever thought about that? We we emphasize the blessings of God that come to us here and now as Christians in this life. Yes and amen. But Paul has the audacity to say, if this is the best, if whatever good thing he does here and now is the best we have, we are an embarrassment to society. We are a laughingstock and deservedly so. That's what Paul's saying. If this is the best. Now, was Paul not optimistic about the future? Yes, he was. But he was under no illusion that this life is as good as it gets. He and all the writers of the New Testament point to the hope of the resurrection as the final realization of our redemption. So are we redeemed? Did Jesus redeem us? Yes. But have we seen the fullness of our redemption yet? Let me answer in the words of the Apostle Paul. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, neither is it recorded in the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Jesus came to free us that we may drive towards what is real, for the place that we've longed for all of our lives but just didn't know it. The redemption that was purchased in Christ's death and resurrection will be realized in His final coming when He descends with a shout. And the dead in Christ rise first, and those who remain will themselves be resurrected. And then, what we thought was a siege of heaven, we will discover was actually Him all the time drawing us, guiding us, and preparing us for the restoration of all things in the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your good promises. We thank you that we may come to you and call upon your name, that as we wait, we have the hope of redemption. We ask that you would work in the hearts of the saints here, and all those who hear these words, you would comfort and draw them. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. Reformed That's Trinity Reformed